on May 20th, 1943, the Saturday Evening Post published a captivating Norman Rockwell portrait entitled Rosie the Riveter. If you've seen this, you know exactly what the portrait looks like. It is the picture of a, of a woman standing um, next to an American flag with bulging biceps, dressed in the deepest dark blue uniform, so it sort of, well, meshes into the fabric of the great American flag, and in her lap, uh, she's holding a rivet gun in one of her hands. She has a large sandwich, and at her side is, is a lunch pail with her name on it, and her foot rests atop a copy of Hitler's Mein Kampf. And the point of it all was to uh, rouse the nation to a spirit of patriotism. And the kind of patriotism that was called for was to uh, encourage women to leave the domestic realm in their homes and to take up a job in the workforce so that they could fill the gaps that the boys had left who'd gone off to war. And so eventually it was swept up and made a piece of United States um, government propaganda for the day in order to sell U.S. Treasury bonds and to promote uh, the war effort. And I reach for this because it is a classic example of artistic idealism. It's an ideal. And the word ideal comes from the Latin, which means uh, existing in idea. In other words, it is to take something and to magnify its glory to uh, exalt its magnificent. In other words, maybe even to stretch it beyond what is normal in order to magnify the point being made by the picture. It's an ideal. It's not an exact representation. It's designed to inspire, uh, to lift the imagination up, to think of greater things. I reach for this concept of Ideal, because I think that's what Nehemiah 3 is about. It presents us an idealized picture of the rebuilding of Jerusalem's ruined walls and an idealized picture of the participation of the people of God as they rebuilt those walls. And uh, here's some reasons why I call it idealized, because we have an idealized picture of the people of God at work as <laughs> priests and laymen, citizens and politicians, tradesmen and merchant men and women all walk armed together in rebuilding the walls. It is an idealized picture of the security of the people of God as they go about their work. As you survey chapter 3 and pour over its details, you virtually cannot find a hint of opposition or struggle. And yet, as we're going to find as we read on to chapter 4 and 5 and 6, it is full of dramatic intrigue as the enemies of Judah, in particular Nehemiah, seek repeatedly to thwart the building experience. And yet none of that is described here in chapter 3. I call it an idealized picture because of the perfect tense verbs that are used throughout. All throughout our text, you will find reference to the fact that the work was completed. And yet here it's Nehemiah 3, and we don't have record of the completion of the walls until 52 days after the building project commenced and in chapter 6. 
So, what I'm arguing here is that in Nehemiah 3, before we get to the nitty-gritty of the building project, what we have here is an idealized picture presented by Nehemiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the people of God to contemplate so that we will begin to think about the meaning of the project and so then that we will understand something about the participation and the involvement in the people of God in it. Because after all, these walls are really not just about architecture. It's not merely about something physical. As we've said already a, a few times, these walls are about something spiritual. They have a spiritual purpose. Uh, number one, they're there to reinforce the identity of the people of Judah as the inhabitants of Zion, the city of the great God. Uh, the walls of Jerusalem are there to symbolize separation, uh, the separation that God called his people to, which was a separation from uh, the paganism and the idolatry of their environment, uh, so that they will be a people who are holy before the Lord. The walls symbolize the, the separation and the distinction, particularly of the tribe of Judah from all of the people of the surrounding regions and lands, because it was, after all, through this tribe and this tribe alone that the Messiah would come. So those walls need to be intact as a mechanism for maintaining the integrity of Judah so we could say the gospel would actually occur. So those walls have a gospel impact and a gospel significance, if you will. But if we were to understand these walls in, in a full light of the unfolding of the Word of God, even particularly in the Old Testament, uh, we understand that these walls and the repair of the ruin of Jerusalem are about symbolizing the glory of God. Because as you think about the wall project and, and the repair of Jerusalem through the lens of, let's say, Psalm 48, one of the things that makes, uh, is made clear to us is that the very glory of God is manifested in the restored Jerusalem and its city and its walls. So when you read Nehemiah 3, I, I get it that it feels very uh, mundane. Lots of names that are very hard to pronounce and uh, maybe even uh, a world and a set of actions that feel far beyond us and maybe even uh, utterly insignificant to us. But that's really not the case at all. Because when we understand these walls and this project in view of the Word of God, what we begin to perceive and to lay hold of here is that this is all about the people of God united together to promote the display of the glory of God. That's what this text is about. The people of God uniting together in a common purpose and resolve to put on display the glory of God through the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem. So let's think about that now this morning under two parts. Unity expressed and the unity explained. And I, I think really this first part is, well, it's, it's an attempt to lay hold of this larger idea that I'm explaining to you that uh, the walls are really put here or set forth here in Nehemiah chapter 3 in an uh, idealized way and that the work itself is presented to us and narrated 
in a sort of idealized way as uh, a work accomplished and a work accomplished with the greatest sense of unity and partnership among the people of God. And so I want to take a moment, and if I can borrow a language from Psalm 48, have us um, uh, walk around Zion. That's what I'm going to do, first of all. Let's walk around Zion uh, uh, by, the, by means of the actual narrative that Nehemiah provides. And I'm going to argue that he wants us to do that because uh, of a simple little detail in your text. I would have you notice in verse 1, we have reference to the sheep gate. That Elisheb and the priests and the brothers rose up and they built the sheep gate. Which, by the way, is located in the north northeast corner of the city of Jerusalem. And then I'd have you drop down to verse 32 in your text. And you'll see there, between the upper room of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out their repairs. So uh, here's an entry point into our text already, that our text is bracketed by reference to this sheep gate. Now, why is our text referenced or bracketed by the reference to the sheep gate? And the answer is this, because what Nehemiah does is he starts here at the northeast side of the city, and he presents this information for the eye of faith to contemplate, because here's what he does. He presents the rebuilding project and the participation of the people of God in the form of a circle. It goes counterclockwise around the city just like this, all the way around to complete the loop. So the very manner of the presentation of the details is symbolic. It shows a circle completed. And within that circle, we learn about all the structures that were repaired and the people who participated. So I want to just say here in a minute, let's walk about Zion for a second using the details of our text in Nehemiah chapter 3. And the first thing that we note, and I can't stop by every single one, but I want to give you enough of a sense of the flow and the setting forth of the sequence and direction of the narration of the rebuilding project. So we begin with the sheep gate. And the towers here at the very start of the project in verse 1. And then we have reference to two military fortifications. And I'll explain why in a moment in our next point why that matters. We have reference here to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. And by the way, there are several military fortifications which are located on the north side of the city. And the reason for that is on account of the geography of the city itself, because all of the sides of the city, on the east and on the west and the south, are flanked by very steep canyons. And so it would be very difficult for an enemy to attack on any of those sides, east, west, or south. But the north comes along sort of a plain, a mountain plain. And so here, we needed the most reinforced uh, strategic military fortifications and that's why we have more references to these fortifications and these towers here so we have that in verse 1 and as we keep moving in our text counterclockwise we come to verse 3 and we see a reference to the fish gate and I'm just going to uh, put this thought here for you to see for yourself they laid its beams and they hung its doors bolts and bars which indicates what a finished product and i've already said we know that the product wasn't finished 
Uh, we know that even the gates and the doors weren't really laid until we come to uh, Numbers, uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. So the presentation is idealized, as if mission is completed. But this fish gate is located to the northwest of the city, and, and you guessed it, the reason it's called a fish gate is because there was a fish market there at one point. Drop down to verse 6, and you see here the reference to the old gate. It was... Uh, built up by Jehoiada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besedeah. They repaired, perfect tense, the old gate hung its doors, bolts, and bars. This is on the northwest corner of the city. And now we come to the broad wall, which is in verse 8. And that means now we're descending on the west and the north side of the wall, coming down this way in the city of Jerusalem. We come to verse 11, and what we see here, another reference to a military fortification, uh, the Tower of Furnaces, and now we're just about the midpoint of this western wall. And then we have reference in verse 13 to the whole rest of the sweep of the west wall. It stretches from the valley gate to the refuse gate. I'll just have you notice your text even tells you the distance between them was about a thousand cubits, which we would say is roughly five football fields in length. So here we have reference to this valley gate, which would have been the main gate of the day, which was the gate that Nehemiah went through when he went on his nocturnal midnight rest, uh, inspection uh, of the city and its walls. He'd never seen them before in his whole life, mind you, and he sees it all for the first time at dark. But he went through that gate, and then he went south, and so... The description geographically runs south now to the very southern tip of it, the southwestern tip of the wall, which would be the refuse gate, which looks over Hinnom Valley, which was the garbage dump of the city. So now we're all the way at the bottom, and we start tracking, let's see, to our east along the walls. You see the fountain gate and the wall pool of Shelah at the king's garden. All that is spelled out for you in verse 15. Now we're at the southeast corner of the city. And then we have reference to something called the tombs of David in verse 16. And it means just exactly what it does. If you were to look over at 1 Kings chapter 2.10 this morning, you note that David was buried, uh, according to the text, in the city of David in a particular place where the tombs were. And um, it wouldn't just been David, it had been all of the kings of Judah after him were buried in this, in this particular location. And now from here, the text does something interesting. Instead of referring to gates and so forth, really what happens from verse 17 eh, till towards the latter part of the 20s in Nehemiah 3, uh, we're talking about the restoration of people's houses. And most of these would have been the house of the Levitical personnel and maybe some of the, uh, the lesser royalties. And we don't really get back to gates till verse 26, where you read here, verse 26, it says that um, the temple servants living in Ophel made repairs as far as the front of the water gate towards the east. Now, uh, what's important about this Ophel is Ophel literally means hill or bump or a rise. And this means it is the open area which is uh, on the ascent into the temple itself. And so here in, in that particular region, notice who's doing the work, the temple servants. At the rise of the particular valley, heading up into the temple, here they are repairing. And then we come to this west gate, 
which is on this, uh, it's opposite of the west gate here, and uh, the valley gate. And then you come to the horse gate in verse 28. We're told the priests carried out the repairs here, and now we're all the way up on the northeast corner of the town. And, well, we've nearly made our connection. I'll skip over a few other uh, uh, places uh, on the itinerary here. And just have us notice the loop completed as you come into verse 32, where we're told here between the upper room of the corner and the sheet gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants carried out their repairs. And I, I walked you through all of this to establish some things. First of all, to show you the description, just sort of that we're oriented. It moves counterclockwise from the northeast corner all the way uh, down west, southeast, and then across to the very end to complete the loop. And the other thing that I've done here, trying to walk you through some of this, is to show you the picture of completion. Uh, see, in verse 1, we notice that uh, the walls were not only finished, but consecrated, which we know does not happen until later in the book. Um, notice it tells us that uh, the beams were laid and the doors were hung, the bolts and the bars. We read that in verse after verse after verse. Completed work, yet it's not done yet. Repairs made, it's all perfect tense. Uh, the restored Jerusalem uh, broad wall in verse 8. The, the valley gate is repaired, verse 13. You see, the sum of the description is to present the ideal. The sum of the description is to present the ideal. And the ideal set forth for us to contemplate is the restoration of the city as a whole. And as we're going to find out in a moment, uh, the restoration of the city as a whole means restored glory. And that's why I'm calling this mini-series on Nehemiah 3, 4, 5, and 6, Restoring Glory. Because all of it is about restoring glory. Not Zion's glory, not Judah's glory, but God's glory. And each section of the story of telling about the restored glory, well, what it does is it picks up a little thread right alongside that to show an element of how this all occurred. And the way it occurred in chapter 3 is another idealized portrait of the people of God as a whole, united in participation. And that's what I want to signal here, which is that Nehemiah magnifies the restored glory of Jerusalem through the unity of the people of God. And he goes in what we would say is scrupulous detail, right? Look how many different references. If you count them up, there are 41 distinct references to construction crews. 41 of them. And uh, most of how the story is told is literally in the Hebrew, by the hand. In other words, and by the, ne by, uh, the, the next construction crew starts literally right next to where this person's hand ends. And it goes all the way around the city that way. But as you read the description of it, one of the things that stands out is the individual nature of the participation. One of the things that stands out in the description of the repair of the walls through the unity of the people is that everybody had a part. So let's look at it. The individual participation begins in, in chapter 3, verse 1, with the high priest, Eliashib, the high priest, and with his brothers, the priests. Now, why is that so important? Well, first of all, Eliashib 
is the grandson of Yeshua, who was the high priest during the days when the temple was restored after exile. So he stands in a long line of faithful priests. But he's also the high priest. And and that indicates to us something important, that even though he is, I think we could say, or holds the highest and most holy place within all of the land as the high priest, getting his hands dirty to do the work was not uh, beneath him. And so if he's going to get his hands dirty and pick up a shovel or grab a saw or, or, or swing a hammer to rebuild something, uh, and he's the most exalted person in the land, then surely everyone else can follow. And so that's what we get here in the reference to Eliashib and his brothers, the priests. They all threw in. They all pitched in. And as you read through the second part of Nehemiah 3, you repeatedly encounter reference to the religious personnel. You have the priest, you have the Levites, and you have the temple servants. So here we start off with the highest offices in the land, the most holy people in the land. Well, they're doing the work. And the next reference I'd have for you is the politicians. Look at verse 9. Next to them, Raphaia, the son of Hur, the official of the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Well, um, this word official uh, means prince. Uh, It means prince. This is somebody that is considered nobility. This is somebody with dignity. He is a politician who oversees what's called the district, which is its own administrative unit. And I think we might even be able to call it something like a supervisor or something of that nature. But it is an appointed, elective office. But the point I'm making here, by speaking of the officials, he's speaking of the politicians. Well, obviously that stands out to us, right? Because the only time we see politicians next to a building project with a shovel is on uh, the day of what we call the groundbreaking, where all of the mucky mucks and uh, somethings to be in the community show up at a plot of land where uh, they've uh, invested political uh, and civil resources, and they all stand and have a a big self-congratulatory ceremony, and each grabs a shovel, and and the photographer's there, and they stick a piece of a shovel in the ground, they overturn the dirt, and everybody's snapping photographs and, and clapping, and they're holding a very dignified celebration of the work to come. And the next time you see people, uh, the politicians gathered around the project is when it's completed, and that's the so-called ribbon-cutting ceremony. You see, they have nothing to do with the work. But here in our text, one of the things that is important is that Nehemiah goes out of his way to repeatedly refer to the fact that the officials, the politicians, took part of the work. They grabbed hold of shovel and trowel and hammer. The next thing that we see are skilled laborers. Look in verse 8. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And so what is he doing? Well, he is referring to the ancient trade guilds. And there would have been way more than this. There would have been all kinds of, of pottery guilds, uh, Uh, jewelry guilds, there would be lots of different guilds who extended their professional help and expertise to the project, but what Nehemiah does, at least by referencing these two, is to show that everybody who had skilled labor abilities also participated in the project, 
And then you come into verse 31 and you have a reference to the merchants. It says after him, Melchiah, one of the goldsmiths, carried out repairs as far as the house of the temple, the servants and of the merchants. And so the merchants here, the people who are making their money off of selling all this stuff that has to do with trade. Well, they're involved. The last thing you have, which signifies the totality of the unified commitment uh, to rebuilding these walls among the people of Judah is something very interesting in verse 12, where it says, Next to him, Shalom, son of Haohesh, the official of the Hastrick district of Jerusalem, made repairs, he and his daughters. Now, some people have uh, brought up the idea that villages, since it can be feminine in Hebrew uh, gender, is what's in view here. So it simply means the people of the villages. But that's not the case here. The case here is speaking about family relationships and family members. And it would seem that uh, Shalom has no sons. And so what does he do? Instead of having sons, he brings all of his daughters. And and they begin to swing a hammer to help rebuild the walls as well. And, And the totality of the image now presented by marking out, identifying, and referencing all the different types of people is to say this. The people of God are galvanized and united together in the project. It's an idealized presentation. There's only one negative tone or hint in the whole text, and that's in verse 5. Look at that with me. Verse 5, Moreover, next to him the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of the master. So the good news is that those children of Tekoa were out there and they were working along, but the nobility from the town didn't just think that the work was beneath them, they were against the work. And likely the reason they were against the work is based upon our knowledge of where Tekoa is, which would be southwest of Jerusalem on the border of the region, which was governed by Geshem the Arab, who is, guess what? As we saw in chapter 2, one of the leaders of the opposition to the rebuilding of the wall. So that indicates to us that the nobility from that region were more invested in Geshem and his opposition than they were as a part of the people of God in restoring Zion's glory. They were about worldly glory. They were about self-glory. They were about their own profit. The rest of the chapter speaks in terms of individual participation. But there's something else here in all of the detail of our text, which is regional participation. I'll just walk through some of these here in our text. In verse 2, we're told, the men of Jericho built. Well, do you know what a commute that would have been from Jericho? Jericho is 16 miles east of Jerusalem. Back then on a donkey, that's a long commute every day. You go to Tekoa. Uh, in verse 5, we're told the men of the Tekoites made repairs. Well, that's 12 miles to uh, the south of Jerusalem. Then you have Gibeon and Mizpah in verse 7. That's about seven, six or seven miles away. And then you've got uh, uh, Beth Hekrim, which is about three miles. And another one is Bethzur, which is 13 miles south at the southernmost border of the region of Judah. And yet, Nehemiah is, is careful to chronicle not just the people who participated, but where they were from. And all that is to say that Nehemiah is saying 
that the construction was an all-hands-on-deck approach. That people from whatever walk of life they were from, and from wherever they were located in the region of Judah, all of them came to Judah for the single purpose of restoring those walls. In reality, they had no benefit in it, many of them, because they didn't live there. Finally, we see strategic participation. This is one of the more interesting features of our chapter because mixed in with all of the, the names of the individuals and the geographical place names, well, uh, Nehemiah keeps sneaking in something. And I, I wonder if you saw it yourself. And it's this. Uh, so-and-so built opposite of his house. Listen to this. I'll just read them off for you quickly. In, in verse 10, next to Jedediah, the son of Haramoth, neighbor Paris, opposite his house. That's across the street. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hekaz, repaired another section from the doorway of Eliashib's house as far as his house. So he's worked right next door to himself. In verse 23, uh, we read uh, that they carried out repairs beside his house. That's Benjamin, Azariah. And we read here that the priests carried out repairs by the horse gate, each in front of his house. And then after that, in verse 29, we're told that Zadok, the son of Amir, carried out repairs in front of his house. And then in verse 30, after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the son of Zaloph, repaired another section. Meshelem, the son of Berechiah, carried out repairs in front of his own house. Well, what, what do you uh, make of all this? Well, the reality is it, it was simply smart because what it did is it maximized efficiency. It, maxim, it, it maximized efficiency to arrange the workers to do the work which was by or in front or next to their house so they didn't have to spend time commuting every day. They could just go to work and at lunch they could quickly run back to the house and grab a sandwich and go right back out to the wall. But there's something more than efficiency, it's quality. Because after all, think of it like this. If you knew um, that your house was located uh, next to the wall that you were working on, wouldn't you expend every bit of your own might and ingenuity and wisdom in building and reinforcing that portion of the wall, knowing that if it was caved down or kicked in, that the intruder would be in your living room? Wouldn't you, ex uh, wouldn't you uh, expend the greatest amount of your energy in making sure the place around you uh, was safe and secure for your family? So as you look at all of those things, what emerges is this grand narrative, this grand picture and portrait of, uh, of a work of, of inconceivable order and unity. And I keep stressing that because why? These people have been returned to the land for over 90 years. Think of it. For over 90 years, they sat there with ruined walls. And no one lifted a finger to repair it. And yet, all of a sudden, as Nehemiah comes into town, he, he uh, takes a, a midnight inspection um, survey of the walls and comes back to the people in assembly and he gives them a powerful and persuasive appeal to rise up and build. And the next thing that we see, something that hadn't been done nearly 100 years, all of a sudden gets done in 52 days with the greatest amount of participation. You start to think about that, you realize what you have here 
is an idealized image. As we think about the walls complete, something that was inconceivable for a hundred years, and everybody was a part of it, surely something no one expected. So we've seen the image. We now need to explain it. What does this all mean? And as people of God just swear, we have to be really careful when we interpret the scriptures. It, you know, it, I, I consulted more than one sermon on this where uh, people trying to do their best to explain the word of God uh, found um, something spiritually significant every rock and tree and bush. Every gate in this city had something of some messianic significance to some portion of Christ's life. Well, excuse me this morning if I don't have eyes to see that. I think that the way you begin to interpret a chapter full of details like this is to step back from it and see what is the totality of the message which is being communicated to it. And then we start looking at the various details of the text and we see how can we interpret these in light of the text and its context and the broader context of the word of God to see what's going on. And you know what? The entry point to understanding is found first of all in verse 1. In a very innocuous word, look at it in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1. It said, Eliashib and uh, the high priest, well, they arose. Uh, the first entry point into understanding uh, this unified image and the work is um, the motive, the unified motive. And I begin uh, with verse 1, and the verb arose because it looks right back. It's a verbal link right back into the preceding text and into verse 18 in chapter 2 where we read, let us arise. It's the same verb. And here, this uh, puts the spotlight on the people of God after Nehemiah's very powerful and persuasive appeal. And what it tells us here, it gives a window into, is that the totality of the people in the assembly mutually rose up and said to one another, let us arise and build. The point is, the unity expressed here in chapter 3 is nothing more than the fruit of of this common unified commitment of chapter 2 that's expressed here in verse 18. So the question is, what is it that got all of those people leaning forward in their seat to the point where they shot up out of their chairs and they said to one another, let's get to work? And the answer is the appeal that Nehemiah gave them. And we've seen this, but I remind you again this morning since it's Textually linked into our chapter, uh, we're given this information for our own understanding. And, and you see, something drastic had to change in the situation spiritually in order for the people of God to get to work. This is not merely a narrative presentation uh, of a mundane labor effort, it's a spiritual effort. And we know that because of how Nehemiah describes it. As you see here in verse 17 of chapter 2, I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so there will no longer be a reproach. You see, I want us to read everything through that last word in verse 17. It's a reproach. It's a reproach. And he begins verse 17 with um, 
with the verb you see. In other words, he grabs hold of their attention and he says, I want you to register and think through all that you see around you here. Look at all of the ruin and the rubble. Look at the dirt and the dust and the the stones that are overturned and all that's on the east side of the wall as it just spills and vomits down on the east side below. Look at the broken houses. Look at the busted down gates. Look at the brick ruin. See it. That was the beginning point of the resolve. And then he describes it in spiritual terms. He says it's a desolation. It's all a desolation. It's a, it's a dried up pile of, of dusty rubble. It's destruction. And he describes it in the most graphic of terms of, of the, the gates being devoured by fire and walls busted down with just powerful force. And the linchpin in that description of it is he says, well, verse 17, bad. But it doesn't mean bad. The word there is evil. You see, the entire description, which forms the basis of his appeal, is to see it in spiritual terms. These people, day after day, carried their lunch pail out to the fields to work. And as they came in each night, they saw all of the ruin, the brokenness, the, the, the gates consumed by fire. And none of them seemed to have spiritual eyes to see. Nehemiah says, you see it. You know what it is. It's evil. And having described it, then he locks down his appeal with, come, let us build. It's a command. It's a command as one in authority, as the magistrate and the governor of Judah, he commands the people to do something. And notice that he calls upon them to do it in unity as he says, let us. They're not going to go down to Home Depot and hire a workforce. This is a spiritual project requiring spiritual people with spiritual motives. And so he calls upon them to galvanize together in unity. And the key point of it all as we come to the last word in verse 17 here is that he says, so that we will no longer be a reproach. You see, reproach means contempt, dishonor, disgrace. This is how he characterizes the walls in spiritual and moral and religious terms and categories. It's evil and it's a reproach. It's a disgrace to the glory of God for the church to lie in ruin. That's what he's saying. He's appealing to what every person who's indwelt by the Spirit of God should think of ruin and corruption and decay and chaos in the church. That it's a disgrace. We can't have the church, which is to bear the stamp of the glory of God, looking like ruin because it dishonors Christ before the world. People sometimes don't consider their actions and the ruin that it causes it in spiritual terms because they're so absorbed in themselves. All they can think on is how things are affecting them. Nehemiah is very careful not to do that. 
He says, I need you all to sense your own involvement in this. You've contributed to this reproach by letting the walls remain in ruin. After all that, he, he says, let's remove it. And as a response to that, we find now this mutual call to build. They said, let us arise. And so they put their hands to the good work. The point is that every man fell under the deepest sense of conviction and what united them was to throw off the disgrace of sin. What united them in this effort, and we've already seen what an incredible unity it was, a, a unity of individual participation, a unity of regional participation, a unity of official participation. We have everyone, uh, everyone participating in the work because everyone has come under a sense and awareness of the conviction of their own sin. You want to motivate a congregation to change, it always begins here. You want to move a church to repair the ruin that's been caused, it always begins by people acknowledging sin. And you say, Pastor, why would you be so concerned about sin in a congregation of the ruin it causes? And the answer is because we have far too many testimonies of how sin is ruining churches. Gross sins, ordinary sins, small sins, verbal sins, action sins. And you know, when people commit them at the time, they don't really seem to think it's very big. They don't feel a pinch of conscience or a twinge of concern until afterward all of it piles up and so many people begin to become involved in it all that it's a collective sin of the whole congregation and nothing less than corporate confession of sin and repentance will change something. But when everybody falls under a unified sense and awareness and conviction of sin, the Lord is going to work in grace. The Lord is going to move Sin's ruins will be repaired. People of God, let's never forget of the ongoing need of, of all of us as a congregation to know about our sins and the need for repentance and real confession of sin so that we can restore what it has ruined and repair what it has damaged. There's something else in this, though, that contributes to the overall perspective of why they did what they did. First of all, they were motivated. And second of all, they had a great understanding. I wonder if you caught it. It's in Nehemiah's testimony of their mutual admonition to one another. Verse 18 um, records the fact that they said, let us rise up and build. And then Nehemiah describes their work, which is unfolded here in Mark full account, chapter 3. He describes it like this. He says they put their hands to the good work. That's an addition. It's a way of characterizing the mission and the project and the labor that you're reading about here in chapter 3. It is described as good. And so the question that immediately emerges in our mind is why is it good? Why is it good that the walls are repaired? 
And in order to understand the goodness about why the walls are repaired, you need to turn over to uh, to Psalm 48 because here is uh, one of those places in Old Testament Scripture which would have formed the context of of their own understanding of the walls, and maybe they even some of these as they were uh, as they were swinging a pick and and uh, and uh, smoothing out the mortar with the trial. Who knows? I don't know with the trial, but but notice here. The very first thing that we read here in Psalm 48, 1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. That, that's a great statement. We could just stop right there and I'll say another word. The Psalms are, are full of these, of these great doxologies. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And, and everybody says hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Of course, He's great. But then notice how that's unpacked. In the rest of verse 1, no sooner as it says he's great and greatly to be praised, as it says, in the city of our God. You see, Psalm 48 will be a, a meditation and a doxology upon the glory of the person of God. But the way it will unfold is with our feet on the ground. Because what it says here is that the glory of God is put on display. In what? In the very concrete and mortar and bricks of the walls of the city of Zion. You see, it's the very city of Zion which mediated the glory of God. Look at verse 3. Zion's palaces reflect the glory of God. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. That word palaces doesn't mean a, a king's palace. It, it would refer to everybody's Condo, really, and townhouse. Uh, all of the all of the the ordinary <clears throat> uh, dwelling structures of the city. Well, what does it see here about them? God has made Himself known in them. Imagine that. In, in, in all of the homes of the covenant people who live in the city of Jerusalem, who sing their psalms at night and catechize their children in the faith, in all of those homes, God dwelled in the midst of it. He made himself known. It's a, it's a verb of revelation and disclosure. It says here in verse 3, he made himself known as a what? As a stronghold. You see, God is magnified here. His revelation is magnified. He is known to be a military fortification, a place of refuge, a God of safety. That's what he makes himself known as in the city of Jerusalem and the homes and the palaces of the city, they all displayed something of a stamp of the praise and the glory and the excellence and the power of God Himself. Notice verse 12 and 13, the structures reflect the glory of God. Look at verse 12. Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her palaces. They're to take a tour, as it were, with a notepad and, and pen and, and just mark things down and document. That's what count means. Document. Take measure of it. Consider. And that word there means uh, verse 13, consider. Raise up your hearts. Make sense of what you see. That's what the psalmist says here. And the thing that they're to look at and make sense and meaning of is what? Towers. And ramparts. Well, I tried to point the towers out to you, remember? I said there were all kinds of towers 
which were military fortifications and defensive structures along that wall. And what Psalm 48 says is you go and you look at those towers. Look at the military fortifications. We have another synonym here in the ramparts. They're, they're defensive measures uh, throughout uh, the city and perhaps even outside of the gates. A, a whole series of, of maybe berms and fighting fortifications so that people could fall back if the, if the, if the enemy is charging hard. But the, the thing of it is is the psalmist is saying, don't just reflect on the temple. Of course, that's glorious. But look on everything. Look at the stones that line the street. Look at the houses that are on the, on the skyline. Look, look at the, the towers and the ramparts and the military fortifications. Everything associated with this town is to say, holiness to the Lord. It's all for the glory of God and the display of the grandeur of His name. And then I want you to look at the very last verse in Psalm 48. For such is God. For looks right back to verse 12 and 13. The two are the walk about the town, the notice of the ramparts and the palaces and the towers. And they were to look upon that and see in that. The glory of God on display. Why were these uh, people in the local union hall in Jerusalem roused to work? As Nehemiah called upon them to remove the reproach. Because the motive wasn't just their sin. The reason for the galvanizing together and unified plan and operation was not just to cast off the reproach of their sin. That was needed. That's always needed. But serving God has to be more than you just setting aside your sin. It has to be something positive. The law commands. And here it is right here. The thing that galvanized them and united them to labor as we see here in chapter 3 is they all caught the same grand and glorious vision of God. They were blessed to be in the covenant. They were blessed to be the people of God. And they were blessed to be partakers in His glory. And so then, as Nehemiah called them to work, they were motivated to cast off their sins and they were motivated to rise up and to put their hand to the shovel and the pick and the axe and the trowel for one reason. Because they had discerned that God was calling them to restore His glory by rebuilding what sin had ruined. People of God, there's a, a great takeaway for us here this morning. People of God united in common action to display the glory of God. I got to reflecting upon that theme and that idea. And what struck me is this, is that um, the glory of God displayed in the walls of Zion has been replaced, hasn't it? The glory of God displayed in the walls of Zion has been replaced with something that far exceeds its glory, which is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. I couldn't help but moving from this um, contextual, Old Testament contextual explanation of our text to, to running forward to Jesus Christ. And one of the things that I was struck by in 
The high priestly prayer of John 17 is what Jesus says. He says that the church now manifests the glory of God in its unity. This is how Jesus puts it in John 17, 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one. Jesus says here in His prayer to the Father, you've given me glory. It's the last thing that it looked like when you looked upon Christ in His incarnation before the humiliation on the cross was glory. The thing that He saw with His mind's eye was the very thing that the people of God of the Old Testament saw with the mind's eye and the eye of faith which with the walls mediated the glory of God. And now Jesus is saying here, in the depths of His humiliation, on the night of His own betrayal, before He goes to the cross, He says to the Father, You've given me glory. And He says, I've given it to them. People of God, Jesus mediates His glory to those who are united to Him by grace. When you are united to Christ, He is united to you. And He mediates His glory to His church. So just as those uh, walls of Zion were invested with glory, so through union with Christ, we now are invested with God's glory by grace. And you know, um, that investiture with glory is unto an end. Jesus says, I have glorified them so that they may be one. You see, just as the people of God in Judah were galvanized around the common motive and understanding of, ru- of removing the reproach of ruined walls and rebuilding them that they may be a token and manifestation of divine glory. Now, Jesus says through Himself, as we are united unto Him, we are invested with His glory. And the investiture is that we too would be united, but we would be united in something we never lifted a finger for. They work to display God's glory. You don't. You receive the glory of God in Christ as a gift. And the giving of that to the church is for the unity of the people of God. That we would be united in spirit. That we would be united in Christ. That we would be united in our profession. That we would be united in faith. That we would be united in love for one another. That we would be united to bless Christ and exalt His name and worship Him. begin to understand this in light of the full word of God we begin to understand the riches and the blessing that belong to us as his people because the beauty and the glory of unity is spelled out in such powerful terms in Psalm 133 it says it is good and pleasant it is like the precious anointing oil poured out upon Aaron's head it is like the dew of Mount Hermon, this is the very thing that God commands His blessing upon. Listen to that again without disruption. The psalmist says that the church being invested with glory is the very thing that God commands His eternal blessing. 
that blessing of bearing and being invested with the glory of God in Christ is ours. And it's been given by grace. And that means then this morning, people of God, that everything that distracts and undermines and corrodes that unity which is founded in sharing the glory of Christ must be cast away as a reproach just as Nehemiah said the ruin of those walls had to be cast aside as a reproach we desperately need to hear that call to be united together in Christ and the reason why it's so significant Jesus goes on to explain in the following verse in John 17 23 I am in them and you are in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know you have sent me. The way for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a beacon of hope to the fallen, rotten, sinful, rebellious, confused, deluded, broken world around us is this through union with Christ, being invested with His glory, we are formed into a perfect unity. And when that happens, and we promote it through our prayers and our words and our actions, it bears this testimony to the world that the Father has sent the Son that it may have life. We have a very great vested interest in repaired ruined walls because the uh, that great Old Testament pointer to Jesus Christ to his glory and to his grace to us and so this morning people of God let us lay hold of what we've received by grace and labor with all of our might to reinforce it in order that is we experience the blessing of it for ourselves. We may be used by Jesus Christ to exalt his name. The bearing and holding up this lamp of the gospel to the world that they may know the Father has sent the Son that they may have life.